Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. It's uh, been kind of a rough start to the new year, I'd say, for probably millions of people uh, here in L.A. I know that uh, many of you, I mean, the whole city is kind of reeling from losing Kobe and his daughter and, and the seven others. Uh, I know there's a, a memorial service plan. It's just horrible. And I think all of us have been affected by that in some way. And then, of course, uh, the impeachment trial this week and then the outbreak of coronavirus. Uh, it's been kind of a rough start uh, this year. And all these things are just reminders uh, for me and I think for all of us that we live in a, a broken and messed up world. Um, and truly, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters, you know, again, I'm reminded about all, all that goes on. I'm, the only thing that matters is that you love the Lord and that you love each other. That's really what it gets down to. And so I'm so thankful for the church that that's the message that we get to proclaim. And um, I, I just want to begin in a word of prayer by praying for some of these things. Before I do, you know, it, I hope you received a Baywatch when you walked in. That's what we call our program around here. Inside, there are a lot of things going on at the church, but there are also some notes that you could follow along the message. Uh, as Pastor Greg mentioned, for the last several weeks, we've been in a series here called This Is Home. And the series has been about our church, but more, more importantly, it's been about the church of Jesus Christ and the scriptural benchmarks of a church, the Acts chapter 2 church. And today I want to unpack another important characteristic of the church. Uh, but, but again, as I said before I do, let's unite our hearts in prayer for our city, for our country, and for our world, and for our church, that we would be everything God wants it to be. Okay, so let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Well, Father, thank you so much. It is, it is so good to pause here at the beginning of the weeks. We often think of this as the end of the week, but it's really the beginning of the week as we, uh, as we think about all the things that have been going on. And it truly has been a rough um, four or five weeks here at the beginning of this, of this new year. And Lord, I know that many in this room have been, have been affected by the, this terrible accident, this terrible tragedy. And uh, Lord, we pray that even, even through this, that somehow you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up, that when they, when they consider the lives that were lost, you know, this incredible basketball player and his daughter and, and these seven others, that it will remind not just us, but the whole world that life is so fragile, that life is so short, that there's so much more to live for than just the things around us, but, but that we live for you, that we live for having a relationship with you and, and loving each other. And Lord, our hearts just go out to, uh, to each and every family member that lost a loved one here. And Father, we pray for our country, Lord, that it has gone through just a very tumultuous time. And we pray, Father, for our leaders. You say your scripture tells us to pray for all of our leaders for all those in authority over us, and we pray that that would be, that, that we pray for them, our president and members of Congress and everyone on down, even our governors, even our local officials, Father, that you would bless them, that you would bless them with your presence and that they would rule with a godly, with a godly um, attitude on everything that they do. And Father, we pray that you'd bring peace to the world. I know that right now there's just a lot of uh, tumult all, all around the world, especially with regards to coronavirus and God, we pray that you would put a stop to this terrible disease and that you would protect our own people here as well. So, God, you know, we live, again, in a fallen and broken world. And one thing is so clear is we need you, Lord. We desperately need you. And today, I pray that you'd speak to us, speak to us about the church, Lord, so that we can be the church 
that you intended for us to be, that you, that you would want us to be, so we can make a difference here in this world. So thank you, Father. Thanks for our time. I ask that you'd bless us and speak to us now. Fill this place with your presence, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with um, a little interview, not kind of an interview, but, I, uh, but something here that's going on with the screen. And I wanted to, and I, I was looking for three volunteers, so I was out in the lobby kind of trying to find my three volunteers. I, needed three, I need three kind of youthful volunteers, and I think I found them, so I want them to come out. I know Nate is backstage, Nate Smith, and he's, one, he's, our, uh, he's, one of my, he's my wingman this morning, and uh, thanks, thanks, dude. And then, uh, and then uh, this is Brooke. We included Brooke and Brandon and Jordan. So come on up here, guys. I know they're kind of shy, and, and Jordan's kind of, Jordan on the other end is kind of freaking out. But, but um, here's what I want to do, all right? I, and they have no idea what I'm going to ask them. They have no idea what's going on here today. But what I want to do is I want to show you some pictures, four pictures, all right? And I want to have you tell me as best you can what these pictures are what they're pictures of, okay? Nate's into this, man, right? You're like, oh, you're all for this, all right? So here's the first picture, all right? What is this, okay? And if you know what it is, don't shout it out. How many of you know what it is, by the way? You think you know what it is. They're all old people who know this. Okay, so, all right, Nate, take a crack at that. All right, this is, by the way, this is Nate. Hi. Brooke, right, Brandon, and Jordan. These guys are brothers over here, all right, so... Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, it looks uh, like. And by a the way, whoever gets the most correct answers, belt kind Pastor of, Dave is going to get you a prize. Kind okay, of so. with like a screw, like a screwdriver. Okay, forget no, it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brooke, what, what is this? Uh, <laughs> I think it's like maybe something that you hook up to your car. Maybe? Your what? Your car? Your car. Is it that thing at okay. the back of your car? All right. All right. <laughs> okay. You got, what, what about you, Brian? What, what do you think it is? Um, I don't know what it is, but I was, I was thinking maybe you can connect it to like a horse and a wagon or something. Like a that. horse on a wagon. Know. Okay. Oh, All right. Good. Good. That's good. Good. Okay. Jor uh, Jordan? Like some kind of tool. A tool. Okay. A tool. For like a bike or something. You work for, hey, okay, it's not bad. All right, like for a bike, okay. You, you guys, know, some of you know what it is, right? Wh what is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a skate key, right? And you use it to, fa to fasten your, your shoes to your skates. This is a, here's a skate. This is Pastor Greg's skates um, from 50 years ago. And you would use it to, to uh, you use that little thing, that wrench, to tighten up the skates over your Buster Browns, right? The really old shoes, right? So that's, that's what that is, all right? So you guys messed up the first one, all right? Here's, here's, this, here's the second picture, all right? All right. Oh, some of you know what this is? Okay, all right. What, what is this, Nate? What is this? It's uh, probably a logo, like a... Okay, logo. Of something. It has to do with Canada. Canada. Oh, Canada. Okay, Brooke, what is this? Um, it says the word record, so maybe like recording tapes or something. Oh. Recording tapes, okay. Okay, all right. <laughs> now, Brandon, this is not a ninja star, okay? It's like, uh, okay. Just, just, a, just a hint, all right? What do you think it is? Um, maybe it has to do with something like a record player. Oh, it says record, record player. On it, so. Why do you think that? Because it says 
record. I don't know. <laughs> it says record. Okay. All right. And, and Jordan? Um, it looks like a gear. A gear. Maybe for a record player. <laughs> for a, okay. All right. That's not bad. All right. What is it? 45. It's a 45 adapter, right? So for those 45 vinyl records, you stick it in the middle. Of course, they've never seen one of these records before, these vinyl things. Right, and they wouldn't know what it is, anyways. But you stick it in there, so you can put it. You play it on your turntable, right? That's what that's what that's all about. I mean, it's amazing that um, how we get music today, right? I mean, things have changed so much. Even with skates, we things have changed so much. All right, so here's the third picture. All right, take a look at this picture. All right, mm. anybody? You guys know what this is? Boy, you're old. Okay, so let's start with Jordan. Jordan, what is this? It looks like a paint can. <laughs> a paint can. Or an oil can. <clears throat> an oil can. All right. And what's that thing on top? To open the can. To open the can. Okay. All right. Brandon, you want to add to that? Um, it kind of looks like a key. A key? Yeah. But I'm not sure what that other thing is. Is that so. key fastened to the top there or is it just sitting there? I think it's connected. Okay, connected. Brooke, what, what do you think it is? Um, I think you can take it off the top and then you like put it on the edge and then you do like the this exactly. oh. to like open it. You know? Oh, hey. Yeah. Are you an engineer? Yeah. Engineering? Are you, are you an engineer? No, bio. Okay. Bio, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, she, she got it. You take it, you pick up the top and then you put it in the side and you like pry the, pop the can. To okay, it. what kind of a can is this? Uh, this is a can of what? Anybody? Yeah, well, sh let's go ahead and show them, Carlo. Coffee, right? Isn't it amazing how things have changed? This is how we used to get coffee, in a coffee can. And you would use that key to take off the whatever it is, open the can. All right, that's how it is. All right, one last picture. All right, take a look at this. All right. What's that? Postage stamps? Like... <laughs> Yeah, postage stamps? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, like you put them, I mean, are they, I don't know, some sort of stamp? Some sort of stamp. It's blue chip stamp, right? Um, it reminds me of like the Monopoly that you do at like grocery stores where you can collect a lot and then okay. you can like redeem. All right, all right, that's good. You want to uh, add to that, Brad? I don't have much to add. I just know they're stamps. What's that? I just know they're stamps. They're stamps, okay. Jordan? I like what Brooke said. It kind of looks like a voucher or something. A voucher. Okay. Okay. Welfare stamps. I don't know. All right. Blue chip stamps, right? Remember years ago, what would happen is whenever, whenever you went to the market and you bought something, or if you went to get, get gas and you fill up gas, they'd give you st these blue chip stamps equivalent to uh, your, the, you know, your item, whatever it is you purchased, right? And you would take these stamps home and you would put it in this book right here. And you'd fill it up, fill the book up. Remember these books? And then when you had enough of these books, you would take it to a blue chip stamp redemption center. I don't have a picture of that, but you can go there and then you can redeem them for all kinds of merchandise. You can buy a bicycle, you can get a bicycle, you can get furniture, you can get all kinds of stuff with the blue chip stamps, right? It's amazing how things have changed though, right? Because we don't have any of these things anymore. Hey, give our volunteers a hand. Great job. And I'll give this back to you. All right. Thank you. But you didn't get any of the answers right, so <laughs> uh, too bad, right? Um, anyways, um, 
fun, fun, fun uh, that we get to do this stuff. You know, it was um, 2,000 years ago, right, that Jesus came into the world to planet Earth, and he claimed to be the Son of God, died on a cross for our sins, was raised from the dead. And we are among those who believed him. We're among those who believe him, and we believed his message. But not everyone reacted affirmatively to Christ then and now. In fact, do you remember how the religious community responded to Christ when he first came, when he first burst onto the scene? Do you remember how they reacted to him? Take a look at Luke chapter 5, starting verse 27. That's where we're going to begin today. And again, uh, you can follow along in your Baywatch. Open up your Bible to Luke 5, because we're going to be in Luke for a little bit. Or take a look at the screen or follow along our app. But verse 27, what was the reaction to Jesus when he first burst onto the scene? After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, you can stop right there. In this passage, Jesus called out to a man named Levi, who was a tax collector, and begged him, or not begged him, but implored him to follow him, and Levi did. Now, Levi was rich, and so he threw a huge party attended by Jesus and many other tax collectors. And what happened there was absolutely scandalous. And so the religious community made up of the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like it one bit. And so if you, in, that, in that passage here in verse 30, circle the word grumbled. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The word grumble there means to show smoldering discontent. I mean, it's like, what a vivid word, smoldering discontent. In other words, Pharisees and scribes were not happy campers, to put it mildly, because Jesus had dinner with tax collectors. Now, in case you're wondering, let me just fill you in a little bit, the Pharisees were a sect of Judaism, uh, and they were extremely self-righteous and legalistic. And they liked to pride themselves on the fact that they were very religious, like, look at me, I am so religious, and I do all the things of the law. Now, that was the Pharisees. And then there were the scribes, and the scribes were akin to lawyers, and they were the ones who would transcribe the law. They would write it down and pass it on to the next generations, but they loved to debate, and they were concerned about every jot and tittle of the law. And so together, these two groups, the Pharisees and the scribes, disparaged Jesus for the company that he kept. In fact, if you look at Matthew eleven nineteen, they make this outrageous allegation against him. Take a look at Matthew eleven nineteen. It says, the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So they accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. Imagine that. They accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunk. And then they called him out for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So I want you to circle the word tax collectors and circle the word sinners and I want to shed a little bit of light on, on who these guys actually were. So it's really, really interesting stuff. During the time of Christ, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. You might know that. And the Roman Empire imposed these heavy taxes on all of their subjects, including the Jews. And so the Jews had to pay, for example, they had to pay all kinds of taxes. They had to pay the tributum soli, 
which was a tax uh, on those who made a living off the land. And we're putting all these up here for you. The tributum solely is all in Latin. And then the Jews had to pay the tributum capitus, which was a tax directly on the people. So it was a poll tax. It was discriminatory because if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay for it. But you, if you were a Jew, you had to come up with the money to pay for this. And then the Jews had to pay the portorium, which was a tax on transportation, the transportation of goods, even slaves and animals. If you had to move something around the, the land, you had to pay this tax, the portorium. A portorium. And then there was the, the vicesima hereditation tax. And this was a tax, a sales tax on everything that you purchased. And finally, the Jews had to pay the Roman government the Aurum Negotiatorium, which was a business license tax. And the point was the Jews were taxed to death. They had to pay taxes every time they, they looked around, every time they coughed, they had to pay a tax. Now, to collect the taxes, the Romans subcontracted out the work to guess who? They subcontracted out the work to Jews. And so a Jewish businessman, for example, would bid to win a tax-collecting contract from the Roman Empire. They would bid to win a contract. And if they were lucky enough to be awarded one of these coveted contracts, they got the opportunity to set up a tax-collecting booth in their neighborhood and start collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. And for their services, they could charge the tax-paying Jews whatever they wanted to over and above the taxes that they owed the government. And as a result, Jewish tax collectors ripped off their own people and became filthy rich in the process. And that's why tax collectors were considered the dregs of society. They were considered filthy, and they were despised, and they were hated for working, for one, for working for the Roman government, which occupied their land, and for getting rich off their own people. And this explains why the religious community was aghast that Jesus would associate himself with tax collectors, that he would be a friend of tax collectors. Now, according to Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, they also referred to Jesus as a friend of sinners. If you take a look at that again, he's a friend of sinners. Uh, according to uh, one Roman lexicon that I read, the Greek word for sinners, harmatalas, refers to those who are preeminently sinful, quote, unquote, preeminently sinful and, quote, especially wicked. So he, Jesus associated with those who are preeminently sinful and especially wicked. On another occasion, Jesus dined with a Pharisee. Take a look at what happened next. Luke chapter 7, starting verse 37. And it says, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, harmatalas, preeminently uh, sinful, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And here's the important part. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You can almost hear the disdain in his words. If this man were a prophet, and the insinuation is that Jesus 
wasn't who he said he was. If he was a prophet, he would have known who this woman was and that she's touching him and, and that she is a sinner. In fact, verse 37 calls her, the, describes her as a woman of the city, which basically implied that she was a prostitute. And here he was allowing this prostitute to touch him. Disgusting. It was despicable. And so these are the types of people Jesus associated with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. And so we could say that the reaction to Jesus when he came uh, onto the scene 2,000 years ago was universally negative. It was negative. It was thumbs down. Now here's how Pastor John MacArthur described the reception that Jesus received when he came 2,000 years ago. And this is so fascinating. Take a look at this. MacArthur said, quote, he was rejected, he was despised, he was hated, and he was murdered. And the reason? He was not religious enough. That was the reason. By standards of the Jewish leaders, predominantly the Pharisees, he was not holy enough, if holy at all. He was not righteous enough, if righteous at all. He was not demanding enough. He was not legalistic enough. He was not condemning enough. He was not intolerant enough. He was not judgmental enough. Because he kept company with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Now, put on your thinking caps, all right? Because this gets really good. Put on your thinking caps. Imagine... That Jesus came not 2,000 years ago, but imagine that he came this year. Imagine that he came on January 1st in the year 2020. And he came with the same message. Came for the same purpose, to die on a cross for our sins. How do you think people would react to Jesus if he came today? How would they react to him if he came today? How would the audience react to him If he made an appearance on The View or on a late night talk show, how would students react to him if he was invited to speak at the Quad at Yale or Stanford or Berkeley? What would the reaction be to him even among some religious circles? MacArthur suggests that the reaction to Jesus today would be the exact opposite of what it was 2,000 years ago. Today, the world wouldn't say he isn't religious enough. They'd say he's too religious. They wouldn't say he isn't holy enough. They'd say he's too holy. They wouldn't say he is too righteous or he isn't righteous enough. They'd say he's too righteous. He's too demanding. He's too legalistic. He's too condemning. He's too intolerant. He's too judgmental. That's what they'd say. And I believe MacArthur's right. And it is the complete opposite of what they said about him 2,000 years ago. You see, times have changed, haven't they? But one thing hasn't changed, and that's his message. That's his reason for coming. What hasn't changed is his message. What was his, was his, his mission and his message? Well, he told us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Take a look at it. Speaking of himself, Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, you grab a pen, circle the word lost. He came to seek and save the lost. This word lost 
a fascinating word in the Greek. You know, remember the New Testament was written in the Greek, and so we look at the, the Greek, the original language, to see what it actually means, because the English doesn't do it justice at times. But the word here for lost is the Greek word apolumi. Apolumi looks like this. And you can actually break apolumi down into two Greek words, apo and lumi. Apo is a preposition, and it means away from, away from. And lumi means to destroy. It means to destroy. And if you put apo lumi together, it means to fully or utterly destroy. That's what it means. To fully or, upoly, uh, or utterly destroy. In other words, apo lumi doesn't mean lost, as it says in this English translation, as in, I lost my keys. Instead, it describes somebody who is so far gone, who is so far off the deep end, that their life is fully and utterly destroyed. It is a total wreck. Someone who is apolumi is an absolute train wreck, and without divine intervention, there is absolutely no hope for him or her. And so this is a remarkable statement that Jesus would say he came to seek and save the apolumis of this world. That was his mission. And church, that mission hasn't changed, except that Jesus is not here to carry out the mission. We are. And that's our mission, to help to carry on what Jesus did, to seek and to save the lost. And here's how the Apostle Paul described Jesus' mission in 1 Timothy 1.15. It says here, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Christ came to save sinners. And then take a look at Romans 5, 6. Paul said, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Another word for ungodly is the word wicked. And I think, when I think of the word apolumi, when I think of ungodly, it reminds me of someone I've heard of just this week. This is Abel Ochoa. On Thursday evening of this week, he was executed by the state of Texas for killing five members of his family 18 years ago, including his 32-year-old wife, his seven-year-old and nine-month-old daughters. Seven-year-old and nine-month-old daughters, and then two others in the family killed him. Before the capital punishment was carried out on Thursday evening, Achoa was asked if he had any last words. So while he was there strapped to his gurney with an IV already um, in his arm, he said this, quote, I would like to thank God, my dad, and my Lord Jesus Savior for saving me and changing my life. I want to apologize to my in-laws for causing all this emotional pain. I love you all and consider you all my sister I never had. And I want to thank you for forgiving me. 23 minutes later, he was pronounced dead. Did some research into his life for this message. Found out that Abel Cho was born in poverty to an abusive and alcoholic father. As an adult, uh, there, were, there, were, there was a time when he was a, a law-abiding and hard-working citizen. And then all of a sudden, it started, his life started to unravel when he became addicted to cocaine. In fact, according to court documents, uh, he spent up to $300 a week on cocaine, and he would often even go out and take loans out from the bank to pay for his drug habit. Psychiatrists who testified at his trial said that he was in a cocaine-induced delirium when he went on this killing rampage, and when he was done, five people were dead. When he was done, he wasn't just a drug addict. 
He was a murderer. Ochoa, Abel Ochoa was the personification of ungodliness and apolumi. His life was utterly and fully destroyed. And without divine intervention, there was absolutely no hope for him. And then what happened? God intervened. God intervened. And if you believe his testimony, and there's no reason not to, Jesus saved him. Jesus reached down, got a hold of his heart, opened his blind eyes, showed Abel who he who really was, forgave him of all of his sins, redeemed him, changed him, gave him the gift of eternal life, gave him the Holy Spirit to seal his inheritance, to live inside of him forever. Which means, again, if his faith was genuine, it means that he's in heaven today. Wrap your heads around that one. A killer, a murderer, who murdered his own children is in heaven today. How does that happen? The Bible has a word for it. It's called grace. Amazing grace. Take a look at Ephesians 2.8. Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul said that salvation, going to heaven, is not of our own doing. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. There isn't enough money you can give to the church or anybody else to get there. Grace is the free, unmerited favor of God wherein he chooses to bless us rather than curse us for the wrongs that we have done in this life. And you know where God gathers all of his saved people? Do you know where he puts them? Eventually we go to heaven. But before we get there, on earth, when he gives grace to people, you know where he gathers them and puts them? He puts them in the church. He puts them in the church. God places all of his saved people in this place called the body of Christ, the church. All of his forgiven people, children in the church. And so the church is a graced community. It is a graced community. That's the first thing you can write down if you'd like to do that. The church is a graced community. We've experienced God's grace. Every one of us, we're here because of God's grace. The church, including South Bay Community Church, I want you to get this. The church, including our church, isn't made up of people who think they're good. It is made up of people who know they're bad. The church isn't made up of people who are righteous because of what they've done. The church is made up of people who receive righteousness as a gift from God. The church isn't made up of people who are better than everybody else. It is made up of people who are just like everyone else, except that they are forgiven. We are forgiven. The church isn't made up of people who have got it all together. It is made up of people who are broken and hurting and who are a work in progress. We are a graced community. And Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he what? Lavished upon us. He lavished it upon us. God has lavished, poured out, over and above, abounded, overwhelmed us with grace. That's what it means. 
Our church is nothing more than a collection of sinners saved by God's amazing grace. That's what we are. That's what we are. You know, one day in my freshman year, I just started Roosevelt High School in East Los Angeles as a freshman. And I believe it was the first or second week I was there, I started to experience some very weird sensations in my head. Um, it's like all of a sudden something would just happen and I would just f- freeze up. And then it would pass. And I was like, what was that? And I didn't tell anybody about it. About a week later, middle of the night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I had a massive convulsion. And all I remember when I came to was uh, looking up and, and seeing the paramedics around me. I guess my, my parents heard me uh, thrashing around in bed, and so they rushed to my side, called paramedics. My dad said he had to grab a wooden spoon and stick it in my mouth so that I wouldn't bite off my tongue. Um, and then I spent the next 10 days in the hospital, a few days in, in the ICU, undergoing a battery of, of tests, including a spinal tap and an EEG and electroencephalogram. Um, and I was given a bunch of meds because I started having seizures. Um, because of that, I had to drop out of uh, high school. I uh, sat out my entire freshman year at Roosevelt, quit sports, and I was such a good athlete. And uh, <laughs> I'm kidding about that. Stop, seriously, stop going out with my friends because my parents were worried that I would have a seizure when I was out. And so I was basically uh, a recluse for... Um, a year a fifth, in my 15th year. And even, even though both of my parents were born in America, in the United States of America, they were heavily swayed by their Japanese shame-based culture. And thus, their instincts told them they, that they had to keep my illness a secret. No one could know because it could bring shame upon the family. So we kept it a secret. It was a big secret. If my friends asked me why I wasn't coming to church, or not to church, but to school, uh, or what was wrong with me, I wasn't a Christian at the time. If they asked me what was wrong, I would tell them that I, I had an accident. I dove into the shallow end of a swimming pool and hit my head. And I said that and repeated that so often I started to believe it. And that was, what, that was the excuse I gave to anybody who asked me what was wrong. Seizures finally stopped after about six months, got it under control, but I, had to, I continued to take meds until I was 30 years old. So 15 years I took medication, finally weaned it off, and I haven't had seizures since, since I was 15. But even after I became a Christian when I was 21 years old, I didn't tell anyone about my condition. And one day I opened up to some church friends uh, and to my surprise, they were uh, accepting, understanding. Um, they weren't, they didn't ostracize me. Because I had to take meds every day. I mean, wherever I had to go, even in high school, all throughout college, I'd take meds every single day. Um, and then along the way, along the way, I came to learn this important lesson that it's okay not to be okay, especially in the church. I, I think I heard in a message somewhere, it's okay not to be okay. See, the church... The graced church, the church as a graced community is, it's, is a place where it's okay not to be okay. Will you write that one down? It's okay not to be okay. And see, the truth is, none of us is okay. 
None of us is okay. All of us are broken. All of us are flawed. We all fail at times. We all blow it at times. We all struggle. Maybe it's in our marriages, or maybe it's with your finances, or maybe it's with raising kids. We all struggle with health issues. If you don't now, you will one day. We all struggle with family conflicts, with relationship conflicts, with loneliness, with depression, with addiction, with anger, with grief, with infertility, with sexuality. The list goes on. We all struggle. None of us is okay. And it's okay not to be okay, especially in the church. Let me tell you what's not okay. What's not okay is for anyone to struggle alone. That's not okay. It's not okay that there isn't a single person out there who is praying for you. That's not okay. It's not okay for you to put on an act and pretend that everything is perfect when you know it's not. So write this one down. It's okay to tell others that you're not okay. It's okay to tell others that you're not okay because the truth is none of us is okay. And we all need Jesus. Boy, I probably need Jesus more than you need Jesus. And we all need each other. You know, in 1993, this man, Josh Park, and his wife, Grace, got a call from the IMB, the International Mission Board, to be missionaries in Japan. And Josh's heart was, of all things, his heart was for the 4,000 homeless people who live in Tokyo, or who live on the streets in Tokyo. And so he, he went there and he spent, he spent countless of hours, countless hours in, in parks and in train stations giving away cups of coffee and rice balls to homeless people. And he would share his cell phone number, give away, write, his, write down his cell phone number, give it away whoever, whoever is willing to take it. And he would sit there and he would talk to people, whatever, whoever would listen to him about how there's only one God. There aren't multiple gods, as the Japanese believe. There's only one God. He was part of a ministry called the Sidewalk Chapel in Yoyogi Park. In 2008, he encountered a man there. His name was Kyoshi Sugioka. This man right here, in fact. Kyoshi Sugioka, because he was homeless. Sugioka was the manager of a, of a huge investment firm, a prestigious Japanese investment firm that made, and he helped, Make them, he made them billions of dollars, or billions of yen. And then in 2008, as you know, the bubble burst. In the space of one year, Sugiyoga lost his job, he lost his home, he lost his family, he lost his honor, he even lost his identity. And then he met Josh Park, when Park offered him a cup of coffee in Yoyogi Park. Josh Park gave Sugiyoka his cell phone number, he says, oh, I don't need it. He says, I want you to take it anyways. Take it anyway. He says, I'm, I don't need it. Because things were looking up. Because he just got a job. But he said, okay, I'll take the number. So he took the number. After about a year, he was fired from that job as well. And now he decided to end his life. He said, I've lost it all. I'm homeless again. I'm back in the park again. I have nothing to live for. I've lost it all. I'm going to kill myself. And as many Japanese do, they go to the train station. And they go to the train station, and 
they're standing on a platform and the train goes by and right before it goes right by where they are, they'll jump over and they'll kill themselves. And, if, and, and perhaps you've been in Tokyo or in Japan and you've been unfortunate enough to be on a train and when all of a sudden it comes to a stop and that's because someone has just killed themselves. And so they've got to stop all the trains so they can clean up the mess. So Sugiyoka decided that he was going to commit suicide. So went to the train station, went to the platform, looked both ways, put his hands in his pocket, looked both ways to see the train, waiting for the train to come. Fidgeted with his glasses, took a deep breath, and then he stepped back for whatever reason. He stepped back. And then he remembered that he had Josh Park's phone number in his wallet. So he pulled out his wallet, started looking through his wallet, found his number and said, I'm going to give him a call. So he walked away from the platform, found a phone booth, gave Josh Park a call and says, I need to meet with you. So Josh Park immediately went and met with him. Had no idea that he was going to kill himself that day. And here's what Park said. He said, quote, when I saw him, he was in really bad shape. He looked tired, weary, and worn out. So I just listened to him talk. And then he asked me, tell me about God. Tell me about God. He said, tell me about God. And after Park shared the plan of salvation with him, Sugioka right then and there gave his heart to Jesus. Today, Sugioka has a job, and now he ministers to homeless people in Tokyo and around Yoyogi Park at, with the Sidewalk Chapel uh, ministry. And as for Josh Park, he went home to be with the Lord in 2013, after he succumbed to cancer at the age of 61, but not before he touched the lives of hundreds of desperately hurting people. And how did he do it? He did it by showing grace to people who weren't okay. You see, that's what graced communities do. They show grace. They dispense grace to others. You can write that one down. They dispense grace to others because God has dispensed grace to them. And speaking of the sidewalk chapel ministry in Yoyogi Park, this last summer when we sent a team there uh, to help with Pastor Shindo's grand opening, Scott and Willie, who are part of our team, went to Yoyogi Park. They heard about this ministry they put together with South Bay Community Church funds, they put together 100 packets of little food items, socks, toothbrush, toothpaste, and all those things, and went down there. And I don't know if you remember this, but the typhoon hit Tokyo and, and Yokohama in that area, and it was blowing like crazy. And so Scott checked to see whether or not they were going to still meet in the park as they always do. And he said, and the response was, whether there's a typhoon or not, these people still need to eat. They still need to be ministered to. They still need to be prayed for. So we will be there, rain or shine. And so Scott and Willie, and it was blowing 
like crazy, pulling like crazy. They went out there with these hundred packets from South Bay Community Church and gave it out to those people, those homeless people in Yoyogi Park. That's what graced churches and communities do. Dispenses grace to others. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? We are to give grace to those who hear, who would ever hear, by building them up. And Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Right? So here's a question for you. What do you do? What do you do when someone tells you that they're not okay? What do you do when you find out that someone in this church is not okay? Very simple. You listen to them. You don't do all the talking. You listen to them. And you may not be able to relate to them. You may not be able to completely understand what they're going through, but that's okay. But you can still hurt with them. You can give them a shoulder to cry on. In fact, you can cry with them and pray for them. And as much as you can, you walk with them. And if there's some way God has given you the means, if you have the means to meet their need, then meet it. That's what graced people do because God has given us grace. Well, finally, write this one down. This is your final fill-in. The church is a grace community, and it strives to be more like Christ. It strives to be more like Christ. You know, um, here's what the Apostle Paul said about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Take a look at this. Paul asked these questions. He asked, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We Are those who have died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Very simple, but but in this passage, the Apostle Paul asked these questions, uh, and the reason he asked these questions was because there were some in the church who thought that after receiving God's grace, they can go on sinning. And the more they sin, the more grace they're going to get. So just keep on sinning, and they'll get more grace. And Paul made it abundantly, abundantly clear that is not how it works. Grace is not a license to sin. If God has shown you grace, it is not a license to sin. Grace is not a license to live however you want to live, to say whatever you want to say. It is not a license to make hateful, racist, or derogatory comments about anybody on your social media page or to them directly or behind their backs. It is not a license to go to a strip club and get hammered with the guys. Grace is not a license to bully someone or treat someone like dirt. It is not a license to sleep around with someone who isn't your husband or your wife. Grace means there ought to be a change. There ought to be a change in your life. Because we're new creatures in Christ. We're not the same old people we used to be. And if anything, grace is why we ought to strive to sin less and be more like Christ. Titus 2, 11, we'll close with this. It's such a good passage. Paul said, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Isn't that good? The grace of God 
has appeared. And the grace of God is why we ought to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That's what we should strive for. Let me close with this story. On Sunday, one Sunday morning, a young, long-haired college student named Trevor decided he was going to go to church because God had just been stirring in his heart something fierce. So he woke up, put on his jeans, put on a t-shirt, slipped his feet into his flops and headed to church. Well, Trevor went to school in the deep south where churches tend to be conservative and traditional. And by the time he arrived, the service had already begun with the organ, uh, pipe organs there, and, and there were no seats, couldn't find any place to sit. The minister was wearing this ornate robe. He just began his message. Trevor couldn't find a seat, so he started walking down the front, right down the front to the front, um, right down the middle aisle, just started walking down to the front, looking for a seat, wherever he could find a seat. Couldn't find any seat, so he walked all the way to the front. And he got all the way to the front, he still couldn't find any seats, so he just plopped himself right down on the carpet in the front and sat there. And of course, as he was walking down that middle aisle, you couldn't help but notice him, how he, was, how he looked different from everybody else, this very well-dressed, conservative church bunch. Of course, as, they walk, as he walked down, they were, they were all, everyone was just kind of a little nervous, like, ooh, who's this guy? You know, this is kind of, kind of awkward. And after he sat down, one of the deacons in the back, an old guy, a gray-haired man in a three-piece suit, about 80 years old, got up out of his seat, and he started to make his way down that center aisle, right toward the front. And people gasped silently like, <gasps> but they did it silently, knowing what was about to happen. They all held their breaths as the man marched slowly forward and it seemed like it took forever and all he could hear was the, of his, the tap, tap, tap of his cane. When he reached the front, the old deacon dropped his cane next to the young man and just when everyone thought he was about to let the kid have it, with great difficulty, and I can relate to that, with great difficulty, he lowered himself to the floor and sat next to the young man. And there he sat with him throughout the remainder of the service. See, everyone thought he was going to take Trevor and escort him out, maybe pull him by the hair and take him out. Instead, all the old man wanted to do was to sit next to them so that he wouldn't feel I was out of place at their church. That's grace. That's what graced communities do. My hope is that that's what our church will do. So let me recap. The church is a graced community where it's okay not to be okay. If you're not okay, it's okay that you're not okay. And the church is a graced community where it's okay to tell others that you're not okay. So tell somebody today that you're not okay. And a graced community is a place that dispenses grace to others and it strives to be more like Jesus. That's the church. How about if we make South Bay Community Church that kind of a church? Are you with me? Yeah. Amen. Let's close our time in prayer.
Father, thank you so much for your grace. Every one of us, every one of us, God, we're broken. We're not okay. We've got struggles. We've got things going on. Life can be hard. We hurt. And sometimes we put up a facade. Maybe because it's our culture. Maybe because it's pride. Maybe because we're afraid that we'll be rejected. If people find out what we're really like or what we're really going through. Lord, how amazing is your grace that you take us just as we are and you love us just as we are. And the reason you do that is because Jesus died on a cross for us. Lord, I know that there's some people in here, some Apolumis, whose lives are utterly and totally and fully destroyed. And without divine intervention, there's no hope. But there is hope. Just like there was hope for Abel Ochoa. Just like there was hope for Kyoshi Sugioka. There is hope for us. And if you can save them, you can save us. And so, Lord, this morning, stir in everyone's hearts that we would come to you, Jesus. We would cast ourselves on you in faith and receive your grace. And Lord, do a work in our church. Do a work in every one of our hearts, Lord, that if we have received your grace, that we would be a graced community where it's okay that other pe- others around us are not okay and it's okay to tell others. And when they do, since we're all in the same boat, since we're all made out of the same fleshly material, allow us to be gracious to one another. And Lord, let not our grace be a, an excuse, but a reason why we would strive to change and be more like you. Let it not be a reason why we just keep sinning and living the same life that we had before. So do a work in us, Lord. And we'll give you thanks. And we'll praise you for your glorious and wonderful grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.